Our sermon today is taken from Psalm 73. This is the word of God. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean, and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Thus says the Lord. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is one of the most compelling teachings of Jesus in the New Testament because it gives us a glimpse into certain realities that exist in this life. Realities that exist for both Christians and non-Christians alike. The parable is a story about two men who, in spite of their many similarities, could not have been more different. What do I mean by that? Well, they were similar in a sense that they were both Jews, circumcised descendants of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. They were both religious and worshipped and served the one true God. They were also neighbors, contemporaries, and probably knew one another since they lived in such close proximity. The difference, however, was that although they were neighbors, their lives on earth were quite the opposite. You see, Lazarus himself was an extremely poor beggar who was lonely and had no family or friends. 
His only comfort in life were the dogs who came by and occasionally licked his sores. He was very hungry, badly dressed, and most likely in poor physical condition. The rich man, however, was a very popular person with many family members and friends who loved him and visited him regularly. We're also told that he ate well every day. He feasted. He was very well dressed and most likely in good physical condition. Now, we know from experience that there are now and always have been both rich and poor people in this life. And the problem arises when we learn that after both men died, Lazarus went to heaven and the rich man went to hell. And this tells us that during their lifetime, only one of them was a believer. The poor man Lazarus was righteous. He believed in God. He was a Christian. The lonely, hungry, and afflicted man was righteous, while the popular, well-dressed, and successful man was wicked. And this seems confusing to us, right? Because while they were on earth, at least from a human perspective, it seemed as though the rich man was blessed and Lazarus himself was cursed. And what's even more alarming to us are the words of Abraham in this passage that tell us that all of Lazarus' sufferings and affliction was given to him by God, even though he was righteous by faith. And then to make matters worse, Abraham also tells the rich man that all of the good things that he received on earth, all of the prosperity that he enjoyed was given to him by God as well, even though he was wicked and lived his life in unbelief. Abraham even says to him, in your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus has received his bad things. Now this paradox of the righteous being afflicted and the wicked being favored or blessed in life raises several questions for us about the goodness of God. Does God punish the righteous and bless the wicked? If righteousness is punished and wickedness gets rewarded, we must ask ourselves, what profit is there in living a holy and godly life? What good is there to serving God here on earth? These are some of the questions that are confronted, we are confronted with today in Psalm 73. And there are also some of the questions that the psalmist himself asked as he considered the spiritual climate of the nation of Israel in his very own day. Now, by way of introduction, Psalm 73 is one of 12 psalms that were written by a man named Asaph. And Asaph was a minister of music who was appointed by King David for the public worship of God. And many of Asaph's psalms suggest 
that he had a profound awareness of the conflict that existed between the righteous and the wicked in this life. Now, with that being said, we'll examine our passage today under three headings. Three headings. The predicament of the righteous, verses 1 through 3, and the prosperity of the wicked, verses 4 through 15, and the place of perception, verse 16 through 28. But first, the predicament of the righteous. And as we begin, there are two things that I want us to see about Asaph's predicament. Two things that I would like us to see. And that is Asaph's premise in verse 1 and Asaph's problem in verses 2 and 3. Now concerning Asaph's premise, he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now in this verse, Asaph begins with a premise about the nature and character of God. And his premise is this, that God is good. And this premise of the goodness of God was foundational to Asaph's faith. In fact, the goodness of God was fundamental to the faith of all of God's people. They all knew that God was good. And he was especially good to the nation of Israel in particular, to those who were pure of heart. You only have I chosen out of all the people of the earth. Amos chapter 3. You see, for the Jews, the goodness of God resided not only in his moral character, but it also extended itself to all of his actions as well, right? To everything that he did. God's goodness extended itself to everything that he did, especially in his capacity as a sovereign to reward the righteous and to punish the wicked. But here's where Asaph's premise about the goodness of God turns into a problem for him. Look at Asaph's problem in verse 3. Here Asaph says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see Asaph's problem, right? It's the prosperity of the wicked. He's envious of it. You see, Asaph's premise about the goodness of God led him to believe that in this life, righteousness should be rewarded and wickedness should be punished. The righteous should proffer, prosper, and the wicked should suffer adversity. But his experience in his own life seemed to be quite the contrary. He saw the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer. So Asaph envied the prosperity of the wicked because he knew that everything they received, everything they possessed, all the things that they enjoyed in this life were given to them by God. He knew that their prosperity came to them from the very hand of God. So he envied them. He was jealous of them. He began to covet the things that they enjoyed, things like their good fortune, 
their fame and success, their popularity, their wealth and possessions, as well as all of their various intellectual and physical gifts. You see, Asaph recognized that God, in his goodness, had allowed the wicked to flourish, to be successful, and to prosper on earth in spite of their wickedness. And so Asaph envied them. As a Christian, has this ever happened to you before? Have you sometimes looked out at the world and envied the prosperity of others? You ever thought to yourself, if only I had that person's wealth or success. Perhaps you imagine what it would feel like to have that person's job or career his drive or determination, his or her popularity, good looks and intelligence. You've ever wondered these things to yourself? Perhaps, like Asaph, we too struggle with envy. We envy the prosperity of others. And in verse 2, Asaph tells us, what the result of his envy was, how his envy affected him personally as a Christian. Verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. You see, the effect of Asaph's envy was that it cast him in extreme spiritual despair. His faith was shaken. We're told that his feet had almost stumbled. His steps had nearly slipped. Imagine a person who is uh, walking very quickly down a flight of wet stairs, how he slips momentarily before he regains his balance. The reality was that Asaph's faith had been shaken in a similar way as he came close to doubting the goodness of God to him so that he began momentarily to consider whether he had kept his heart in vain and washed his hands in innocence. You can imagine him saying to himself, if God doesn't punish evil, what good is there for me in trying so very hard to live righteously? Why should I try so hard? Why should I go through all of this trouble to live a holy and a godly life, especially when it's one of God's people As a believer, it seems as though I am constantly chastened and afflicted by God. When I sin, God rebukes me, but the wicked seem to prosper and escape his judgment. And Asaph even admits as much in verse 14 when he says, All the day long he had been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see, Asaph was tempted to forsake righteousness and join the wicked. He was close to forsaking his faith because it appeared that God was not treating him fairly. Many of us can probably relate to what Asaph was feeling, right? Because at some point in the difficult moments of life, whenever we experience pain or heartache, we too often wonder to ourselves, Is it really worth it? Is there really a reward for godliness 
Does God really understand how much this hurts me? How unfair I'm being treated in life. You know, shortly after we were married, my wife and I lost two straight children in the womb. Our first fetus at six weeks and our next child at approximately six months into the pregnancy. And I'll never forget how empty and helpless I felt when the doctor warned us that our baby's heart was no longer beating. And during that awful day, I remember thinking to myself, why is this happening to us? We're Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, here we are, suffering the awful feeling of having lost not one, but two children. Being in the maternity ward that day at the hospital certainly didn't help. So I saw all kinds of couples who were further along in their pregnancies that were healthy, apparently, which only increased, increased my frustration. And I thought to myself, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. Why is this happening to us? This is the predicament, according to Asaph, of the righteous. Now, so far we've seen that Asaph was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. And verses 4 through 12 show us specifically some of the ways that the wicked had prospered on earth. Some of the ways that they had prospered within a nation of Israel during the days of Asaph. And so that leads us to our second point, the prosperity of the wicked, verses 4 through 12. And these verses describe for us two categories of gifts that people receive from God, as well as the impact of those gifts upon others. First, the wicked receive both physical and material gifts from God, verses 4 and 5. And second, we'll see the impact of these gifts upon themselves and others in verses 6 and 9. But first, their physical and material gifts, verses 4 and 5, they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Notice here that Asaph's description of the wicked in these verses are almost entirely material and physical. What Asaph is saying, what he's telling us is that overall in this life, the wicked receive an abundance of physical and material gifts. With regard to their physical well-being, he describes them as having strong and healthy bodies. What he means is that, generally speaking, it's the wicked in the world who are strong, good-looking, well-to-do, and free from serious illnesses. They have an abundance of the things of the earth that make life pleasurable for them. Their careers, businesses, corporations all seem to flourish. They live their lives in luxury and self-indulgence and refuse to deny themselves any of life's pleasures. For the most part, this kind of lifestyle continues on for them without interruption 
as long as they live, so that, as Asaph says, they have no pains until death. You remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, how the rich man lived in luxury and self-indulgence every day. And it wasn't until he died that he felt the pains of God's wrath. Now, it's important to point out that prosperity is not the condition of every wicked person in the world, without exception. Of course not. That's not what we're saying. <clears throat> there are many uh, wicked people in the world who suffer greatly in this life and even experience painful and agonizing deaths. But generally speaking, Asaph is saying that prosperity is the typical experience of many wicked people on earth, whereas the experience of the godly, for the most part, is that they're constantly being afflicted and chastened by God, while the wicked enjoy various physical and material gifts. Now, in verses 6 through 12, Asaph describes for us the impact of these physical gifts upon the wicked. Verse 6, Therefore, Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff. They speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in him. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge? In the Most High, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. In verses 6 through 12, we see the impact of prosperity on two people groups. And these two people groups are the wicked themselves in verses 6 through 9 and other people in verse 10. And the question is, as the wicked are blessed with various physical and material gifts in this life, what effect does it have upon them? How does it affect them? And how does it affect other people? In verses 6 through 9, the impact of prosperity on the wicked is that it makes them become extremely proud. They become self-consciously and deliberately proud, displaying their pride like a necklace for all to see. Pride is their necklace. They wear it like a badge. They're carried away by their own wealth, power, possessions, achievements, fame, success, which only serves to increase their arrogance. You remember the parable of the rich fool who at the height of his prosperity, in defiance to God, said to his soul, soul, relax and be merry, eat, drink, and live your life in prosperity. And what about King Nebuchadnezzar, who proudly proclaimed that it was by his power that Babylon the Great was built? Not by God's power, but by his power that Babylon was built for his glory and his majesty. But you see, when people foolishly exalt themselves in pride, they deny God at the very same time. And according to verse 11, they say to themselves, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? You see, pride makes a person deny the omniscience of God. 
They deny that he knows anything or even has anything to do with human affairs, success or failure, happiness or misery. In that way, God is not a factor in their lives. You know, Napoleon once asked the famous scientist Pierre Laplace if science and scientists were dependent at all in any way upon God for their discoveries, to which Mr. Laplace abruptly responded, I have no need for that hypothesis. See, Asaph was right when he said that the wicked set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. So prosperity impacts the wicked themselves by making them proud. But secondly, Asaph tells us that prosperity impacts others as well. Look at verses 10 with me. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Now in the Hebrew, this verse can be translated like this. Therefore my people turn to them, that is the prosperous uh, teachers, false teachers, and they drink up waters of abundance. My people turn to the prosperous false teachers and drink up waters in abundance. So what does this verse mean? Well, this verse is telling us that the prosperity of an ungodly person greatly impacts and influences others. You've seen it before, how people love to embrace and to emulate the world's view of success. We see it all the time. They love to do that in both principle and practice, for good or for bad, usually for bad, though. According to the first 10, what people drink up is waters of abundance of the message, teachings, and philosophies of the world. Messages of prosperity and success that the world thinks is important. You see it amongst various celebrities, athletes, and entertainers all the time, right? They retire, and then they write books and do reality TV shows on how you can become wealthy and successful just like them. How you, too, can become rich and famous. And these books that they write and the programs that they do are very well received among the masses. They receive worldwide acceptance and approval. Why? Because people love to embrace the world's view of success. Just take a look at the New York Best Times bestsellers list and you'll see an abundance of self-help books on prosperity, success, and personal growth. Everyone's buying them. People are greatly influenced by the world's definition of success and will eagerly follow anyone who they think can help them attain success. This is also true, unfortunately, of the church. You know, during my time in Finland, I was amazed to see that the majority of Christian literature that was the most popular amongst Christians were the products of those who preach the prosperity gospel, teaching that God's ultimate desire for Christians is to be happy, to be healthy, to be blessed with an abundance of wealth and material possessions in this life. Most of the ministers who had written these books in Finland, I knew from America. I knew that they had six-figure salaries, that they lived in multi-million dollar homes, and that they owned private jets, and so on. And to this very day, it never ceases to amaze me 
that every Lord's Day, their churches continue to overflow with people who are eager to embrace the message of success and prosperity. They drink up waters of abundance of the message of false teachers. Simply stated, people are easily led astray by their sinful desires for wealth and prosperity in life. And sadly, this also includes Christians. The prosperity of the wicked. And our third and final point is the place of perception. The place of perception, verses 16 through 22. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you would despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. So the place of perception granted Asaph two privileges. First, it provided him with an eternal perspective. And second, it gave him an awareness of God's presence. When he used his own limited understanding, Asaph could not comprehend the providence of God in the world, why God seemed to favor the wicked and punish the righteous. All the evidence suggested to Asaph that the wicked experienced much prosperity on earth, while his very own life was very difficult and troublesome. And this was all too wearisome for Asaph until he went into the sanctuary of God. There he received an eternal perspective. Now the sanctuary of God in verse 17 was the dwelling place of God on earth in the Old Testament. This is, was the church. This was the place where time met eternity in the sense that present realities of God's people could now be understood in light of the eternal. To put it plainly, Asaph went to church. All of his questions about the goodness and fairness of God, about his faith and about his own life experiences, he sought to have answered by revelation, by the word of God revealed in Scripture. Brian Chapel says, what did Asaph do? The answer to some people might seem perfectly childish. He went to church. Just what others got out of the service, we're not told. But Asaph came into possession of certain grip, gripping convictions that steadied him and enabled him to walk from there on with firmness and assurance. Are you struggling with questions about the goodness and fairness of God, about life and death, about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever it is, the answer can be found in God's revelation of himself in the, in the Bible, in his holy and inspired word. You see, in the sanctuary of God, 
Asaph began to see life from an eternal perspective. There he was reminded that the prosperity of the wicked was only temporary and not permanent. You see, their feet was on slippery ground, and the very prosperity that they enjoyed would ultimately lead to their ruin. All of the good gifts that they received from God only served to harden their hearts as they became even more proud and arrogant. So from God's perspective, their prosperity was only temporary and would ultimately lead to their destruction. And now Asaph understood that there was nothing that he had to be envious about because God's word had helped him to interpret reality from an eternal perspective. But the second thing that he received was an awareness of God's presence. Look at verses 23 through 28. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. Here, Asaph became aware of God's presence. And realized that God had always been with him, even in his sufferings and affliction. And he also understood that God's presence was not only his hope for the present, but also his hope for the future as well. You see, Asaph's problem with the goodness of God and the prosperity of the wicked was really a misunderstanding of what it means to be good. Misunderstanding of the definition of goodness. Before he went to the sanctuary, he believed that the ultimate good was to be found in physical and material prosperity. He believed that prosperity could be measured in terms of a person's possessions. But now, he understood that the true definition of goodness, the true definition of the good was to live one's life in the very presence of God. You see, the person who is truly prosperous in life is the person who lives his life in the presence of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I conclude, there are three lessons that I would like us to learn from Psalm 73. And the first is that the sufferings of Christians in this life, your sufferings and my sufferings, are not God's judgment on us. Christ has taken our judgments. Our sufferings, brothers and sisters, though not pleasant, come from the hand of a loving God whose desire is to make us more like Christ. God did not intend to drive Asaph away, but to draw him closer to himself, into his sanctuary where the word of God was proclaimed. Second, God's presence is always with us, even through all of our sufferings and doubts and afflictions. Through all of his trials, 
God never abandoned Asaph, even though his faith was momentarily shaken. God never left his side. Instead, God guided him throughout the entire ordeal. And he will also do the same thing for you. And third, God's faithfulness to us in the midst of our present sufferings, in the midst of our present trials, is only further evidence that he will be faithful to us in the future. And this is what Asaph meant when he said, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Listen to the words of Charles Wesley, who was one of the great Christian hymn writers. Listen to the words that he said on his very deathbed to his wife. In age and feebleness extreme, what shall a sinful worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop on into eternity. Brothers and sisters, you too can be assured that God is continually with you and will one day receive you into glory. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the message of Psalm 73, Lord. The message of Psalm 73, Lord, tells us not to live by what we see, not to be ultimately affected by our experience, but to live by faith, by faith, Lord, in your promises that are revealed to us in your word. Thank you, Lord, that you will one day receive us into your glory because we have set our faith, O oh Lord, in Jesus who has redeemed us, Lord, from your wrath. Thank you, Father. We ask these things in his name. Amen.